My name is Rainer. Just in case you might not know me, or if you watch the video on YouTube later, I have the privilege of serving at this church plant as one of the pastors, and I also have the privilege of preaching the word this morning. So last week, we kicked off our new series called Things Jesus Never Said. And we uh, handled the theme, God will never give us more than we can handle. Now, I thought Lissachot did a great, great job last week. Absolutely phenomenal. A very comforting message, as well as a very convicting message around that theme. So, well done, mate. Thank you for preaching faithfully. Just in case you missed it, let me show you our series description, just so that you know what we are busy with. Okay? So, it reads as follows. It says, God speaks, Jesus speaks, the Spirit speaks, the Bible speaks. Uh, that's a lot of speaking. And uh, look at me weaving the Trinity in there. So here's what we're busy with. All of it is truth. All of it is transformative and applicable to us. All of it is a solid foundation for us to build our faith and lives on. Did you know that there are things Jesus never said? We often hear these things. We often forward it to others. We often quote it as if it is in the Bible. But it's not. So a good question is, what are some of the things Jesus never said? That's what we're busy with in this series. And this is what we're hoping to unpack over the next couple of weeks. Thank you for all the submissions. Thank you for everyone that voted. Um, we chose those that uh, uh, was submitted to us most frequently by everyone. So here's what we uh, are going to look at this week. Part two of the series. The theme is God wants you happy. Now note, the design of the slide should actually intentionally look like an advertisement. Okay, you guys feel it? Toothpaste, face wash, a holiday in the Maldives, a new caravan, McDonald's new grilled chicken fillet. I don't know, not too sure. But the design of the slide is actually supposed to look like an advertisement. Because I believe that this kind of imagery, these kind of designs is something that we've become so used to right, in the world that we live in currently. Now, we'll get to the teaching text in a bit, I promise. I'll explain it, I'll illustrate it, and I'll make it applicable to us, as we always do. I just think before we get to the teaching text, let's handle the theme, God wants you happy, and let's talk about why we think Jesus said it, and also why it actually is a problem. So I'll get back to that slide now. Let me just have a look at you guys here in gallery, in gallery view. So a quick survey, right, of pop culture, of the public space, would uh, make it clear to us that happiness is quite a hot topic, okay? Now remember, if I do mention pop stars, and if I do mention websites, and if I do mention movies, I'm not judging or discrediting anyone. I'm merely just quoting it. Okay, And the reason why I'm doing this is this gives us the answer to the question, why do we believe that Jesus said these things? Well, it's because it's common things that are being said. So in the early 2000s, Sheryl uh, Crow sang a song. Uh, I was in high school then. And the lyrics of the song goes like this. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, then why the hell are you so sad? Now, I'm quoting it as if it's poetry. But when I was a teenager and this song came up, like raised chin, hands in the air, 
eyes all squinted. If it makes you happy, right? That's how we were when we were teenagers about the song. So something about the song resonated with us. If you don't know Sheryl Crow, you might know Pharrell. Okay, Pharrell says, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Clap along if you feel that happiness is a truth, okay? And I'm actually also not supposed to just quote those lyrics. I'm supposed to do a little dance, right? Like Pharrell would, but I'm not going to do that this morning. So it's a great song. It's a great beat. We sing along to it because it resonates with us. I did a quick Google, how many movies have the theme happiness? And I actually found this article. I want to share my screen with you. I found an article titled 10 movies that show the, oh, now I can't see the rest of the slide here. Just hang on a sec. 10 movies that show the way to happiness. Okay, this happened. Just on quick Google around why happiness is so important and if we actually have movies about it. Now, here's what I read on the website. It says the following. Happiness can come in different forms. Millions of people live on earth and we'll never hear the one and only true answer to the question, what does happiness really mean? Someone may feel truly happy when they're socializing at a fun party, while others may have learned long ago to find joy in harsh, everyday life. Of course, all of us have a lot in common. Most people would include love, friendship, the birth of children, personal achievements in their list of things that make them happy. But life remains a multifaceted thing. We at, and this is the company that wrote the blog, offer you a list of 10 movie guides where the characters manage to find their treasured path to happiness. It sounds really inspiring, guys. Happiness is a real thing. Let's take a look at a couple of advertisements uh, that we have gotten so used to. I don't know if you guys remember this campaign. This was a 2016 campaign by the biggest beverage brand in the world. So Coke is the biggest beverage brand, and I think the sixth uh, most valuable brand name in the world. Do you guys remember this ad campaign? So it said, open a Coke, open happiness. Doesn't that just sound phenomenal, right? I mean, I'm not really a sugary guy, but if I see this ad, I feel like, uh, opening up a fully leaded, red-labeled, original paste Coke, right? Because it's going to give me something. It's going to give me an experience. Uh, even tea brands might go towards the word happiness to use in marketing purposes. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this ad. This is by Lipton. And look at the bottom. The inscription says, not think positive, drink positive. Okay? Very catchy. And it says, you can't buy happiness, but you can buy tea. And that's kind of the same thing. So these words are buzzwords. They get sung about. Movies get made about them. Or movies get made about them. Advertisements use them because it resonates with us. Okay? It's something we want. It's something that we strive for. It's something that is offered to us on a daily basis by different means and through different platforms. Now, here's the problem with seeking happiness, striving for happiness, or pursuing happiness, is happen happiness and happenings go hand in hand. That's not my line. That's the line of Craig Ruchel. Let's give credit where credit is due. Happiness is to be found in things, to be found in moments, to be found in events. And all of those are temporary stuff. So, 
if the happenings ain't happening, what happens to our happiness? Anybody? So that's my uh, feeble attempt to make a little earworm for you, right? Little slam poetry vibe going here. So if the happenings ain't happening, what happens to our happiness? Now for the Christian who believes that God wants him or her happy, this creates a major problem, okay? Creates a major problem for the Christian who believes that God only wants him or her happy. Let me tell you why. Three things are really, really important for us. Whatever makes me happy must be right. And whatever makes me unhappy must be wrong. So we start thinking in that dichotomy or in that couplet, in that pair. We start thinking that whatever makes us happy should be right then, right? Because it's ordained by God, because it makes me happy and he wants me to be happy. And whatever... Uh, makes me unhappy must be wrong that's our first big problem so i'll get to how that applies to our everyday life in just a minute think about the line from cheryl crow that i just quoted if it makes you happy it can't be that bad right and that's something i sung wholeheartedly as a teenager secondly whenever we experience discomfort whenever we experience a delay in gratification even in the answers to prayer whenever we uh, have to take a risk that makes us uncomfortable, especially for the kingdom, for the gospel. Whenever we experience suffering, so we had a whole sermon on this, and the fact that we actually have hope in our suffering. The inconveniences of daily life, especially connected to the gospel, serving someone else, giving grace, giving forgiveness to someone, any obstacles, right, that we might experience in our life goals or in what we pursue. We can't think that that is God's will. See, that's a problem. If you only pursue happiness and you experience all these things that I just mentioned, we easily think that none of these can be God's will. But they actually can. Third thing, without knowing it, I actually begin to worship these false gods of comfort and money and pleasure and things. Now remember, for the modern Western Christian, if I say you are worshipping false gods, many of us would rebut that and say, listen, dude, I'm not bowing uh, uh, in front of any wooden or golden statue. And that is maybe true for you. But the point is, if we trust in something else to give us what we want, specifically happiness, that is worshipping these things that we believe will give us happiness. Let me state the problem differently, and then we'll move on from the problem, because I just want to make a point that this is a really problematic cultural saying that we believe God said to us. Let me state it differently. If God wants me happy, and I'm not, then God failed. That's the problem for the Christian. So if we put all our trust in God that has to make us happy, and we're not, then definitely he failed. Now, that might sound ridiculous to you this morning if you're in a good space and you really just enjoyed worship. But guys, how many times you've heard the following? I tried religion. I tried prayer. I tried reading the Bible. I tried a city group. I tried discontinuing certain habits in my life. I tried introducing new habits in my life. I tried generosity. I tried all these things and they didn't make me happy. How many times have you heard that in conversations with people 
who are either de-churched, meaning that they were in the church and then they left, or people who are unchurched who said, well, I mean, I'm cool to try it if it makes me really happy, but it doesn't. So I just gave up on it completely. So that's the first problem, is that we believe that God failed if we're not happy. If you think about happiness in a, uh, from a different perspective, the problem with us is that since we are not happy, we believe that we are actually allowed to do things that would otherwise be wrong. Okay, So this might be a hard word for you at this point, but it's really important for us to at least admit that. Sin is sin, guys, and it's never right, and it's always wrong. But if we believe that God wants us to be happy, and if we only pursue happiness, then that leads to Christians, you and I, doing things that would sometimes uh, otherwise be wrong. I think in the context of South Africa, there's three things, really, that Christians indulge themselves in. The first one is alcohol abuse, right? I don't know how many, how many of you know Christians that just drink too much. They just do. We have a drinking culture in our country. We know that. Think about lockdown and alcohol sales being banned and then look at all the memes and all the jokes, right? Alcohol abuse is a real problem in our country. And oftentimes, because alcohol makes you feel a little bit lifted and free-spirited and what have you, it's actually depressant, but that's a conversation for another day. We actually believe that if I drink a little bit too much, if I become a little bit too tipsy, it is okay. It is ordained by God. It's quite all right because it makes me feel happy. It's the same in our country when it comes to divorce. I don't know if you guys know this, but the divorce numbers are equal in, uh, amongst people who are in the church and people who are outside the church. Why do people get divorced in our country? Because I'm not happy anymore. Right? So I got married to be happy, and now my spouse is not making me happy. Our life together is not making me happy. Uh, whatever marriage asks of me is not making me happy. And because I'm not happy, I want to leave, because that is essentially my biggest hope. So now we divorce, which is wrong, but we do it because it makes us happy or because we believe that it makes us happy. It's the same in the Christian space when it comes to infidelity and lust, people having affairs with other people, even though it's not only physical infidelity, but like WhatsApp conversations and emotional affairs people have with one another. They always explain that as I was not happy, so I was seeking happiness. And even though I know this thing is wrong, it really makes me feel good. And therefore, it should be right. It's the same with conversations amongst men, and I'm saying men now because I am one, about lust and pornography and having uh, eyes that keeps on looking around lustfully to other women. That conversation always ends with, well, guys, you know, the thing is, I, I need something, you know, my needs are not being fulfilled. So it ought to be quite okay. I actually don't have the story in my notes, but let me tell it quickly. One of the biggest theologians of the 20th century, Karl Barth, he was a Swiss-German theologian, unbelievable theologian. After his death, it came to the knowledge of people that he had a year and year and year and year long affair or years and years long affair with his secretary. Now his secretary also helped him to publish some of his books. Eventually his secretary moved into their house and lived with them and he had this adulterous affair with his secretary while she was living in their house. And he explained it like this when his letters and his journals came out after his death. It feels so good. It has to be from God. Because God wants me to feel this level of fulfillment. 
Now, guys, when I, when I heard that, I thought, oh, my word. I read Karl Barth. I really enjoy his theology. I'm a really big fan of what he wrote. He was phenomenal in unpacking doctrine, doing systematic theology. But listen to his rationalization. His rationalization is, it feels so good. Our happiness is not the highest priority to God. That's really important for us to know. Okay? So think about the story I just told of Karl Barth. In his head, God wanted him to be happy, and therefore what he did was justifiable. But let me tell you guys that God being our father and us being his children doesn't mean that he has our happiness as his highest priority. He does delight in our happiness, but that is not his highest priority. Let me take an example. You've probably seen our kids running around in the living room here, yeah? Ava and Katie, our two daughters. So I'm a parent, right? And when they enjoy themselves, when I see them playing with their Play-Doh, when I see them dressing up and pretending like they're characters from a different world or a different movie or whatever, I really do enjoy it, right? So I delight in the happiness of my kids. I want them to be happy. I want them to have what they need. But sometimes what happens is one of the kids, I'm not going to shame you, but one of the kids would take a, you know, like a swipe at the other child. And they would either give them a harsh word or they would grab something or they would hurt the other person. In that moment, as a parent, my first priority is not the kid's happiness. My first priority is the kid's obedience. Because I want the kids to become uh, meaningful human beings. I want the kids to develop a sound character. I want the kids to be loving. I want the kids to be serving. I want the kids to live outwardly focused. I want the kids to sacrifice for the sake of one another. So even though I want them to be happy, in that moment, I am going to discipline them. Because I know that a child cannot always be happy and then achieve the end of being grown, being nurtured, being taught, and being guided. Does that make sense to you guys? So all the parents in the house will go, yep, yep, yep. If you're not a parent yet, just think about the time when you were a kid, right? There were times that your parents said to you, dude, you cannot have this which you want now. And it felt to us like the world's going to end. But it didn't because we needed that discipline and we needed that guidance. God wants you happy. Jesus never said that. I think I've made that point. Now let's get to the teaching text. The teaching text that we just read speaks to the theme, but it calls us to something different. So I'm going to put on the teaching text on the screen again in just a few seconds. Let me tell a story quickly. So some young police officers had an exam, and in this exam, they had just one question. And uh, the question was this. I'm going to read it just to make sure that I don't uh, leave out any detail. You're in your uniform. You notice smoke coming from a house. You go over to check it out. You gather, there's a family inside the smoking house. The smoke is so intense that it travels to the highway and causes a massive pileup. One car veers off to avoid a collision, but actually flips the car in the process and it rolls down a hill into a river. Okay, massive smash. And then suddenly, one of the most wanted criminals in the country jumps out of another car and starts running away. The question to the police officers in the exam was, what are you doing? Tough question. The shortest answer from one of the students was, I would remove my uniform and mingle unobtrusively with the crowd. I would remove my uniform and mingle unobtrusively with the crowd. You and I, especially if you're a Christian, 
well, only if you're a Christian, we have that kind of temptation, right? To remove our uniform, to take off the badge that says that we belong to Jesus, and just to mingle with the crowd, and just to pursue happiness like everyone else. But the Apostle Peter, in our teaching text today, says we ought to be different. We ought to be holy. We must be who we are. And I'll get back to that now when it comes to our position and also our practical life. Look at what he says in verse 14, and then I will leave the scripture up for us uh, just as I unpack these verses before we land the plane. So he says, do not be conformed. Don't look like, don't be in the same shape as. So the Apostle Peter says to us that holiness is about living out our Christian identity, right? Who we are in a corrupt and in a hostile world. And to live out our calling, he quotes from Leviticus and says, be holy as I am holy. And if we want to live in this way, we need to be driven by the gospel. So here's what I want you to hear. Before we speak about holiness, before we speak about obedience, before we speak about our commitment to Christ, what I want you to hear is this is a holiness that is driven by the gospel. Now, let me just clarify a few things on holiness before I mention uh, six remarks that we can pull from this teaching text today. The first one is we have positional holiness and we have something called Practical holiness as Christians. Positional holiness means we have been put in this position by someone else, right? Ephesians 1 verse 4 says we are chosen to be holy and to be blameless in him. Peter says this so many times through his epistle. So we've been chosen. It's something that is given to us. It is something that is done to us because of our salvation, because we are called into the family of Christ, because we have been made new, because we have been forgiven for sin, because we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We have this position. We ought to be holy because we are holy. And then there's something called practical holiness, meaning the way that it fleshes out in our lives. So let me just nail down a few clarifications on practical holiness. The first one is practical holiness, guys, isn't isolationism. Picture Jesus Christ, right? A male who lived in Galilee, who was a real human being, God become flesh, fully engaged in the world. When we think about being holy, we often think about a monk or a nun living in this cliffside convent or monastery. That's not what we're talking about here. Practical holiness also isn't about external appearances, right? Think about how I put on the old priestly collar this morning that gets used in some church traditions. That doesn't make me more holy. But oftentimes we put holiness equal to external experiences. Practical holiness is not about what you look like on the outside. Practical holiness isn't boring, guys. It's very, very exciting. It turns your whole life upside down. It leads to a feeling of being more than happy. Think about Matthew 5 and Jesus' really long Sermon on the Mount. He lays down the law for us. He describes his kingdom. He tells us what he wants from us. He tells us who we are and how we ought to live. But then he says, you are blessed if you live in this way. So it's not boring at all. But oftentimes we think that a holy life is a boring life. 
Another clarification that we need on holiness comes from 1 Thessalonians, which is another New Testament epistle, chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul says, This is God's will, that you are holy and that you are sanctified. So the question that begs asking is, what's more important than the will of God? Holiness is also not just necessary, right, for us to remain faithful to God and to experience longevity in our relationship with Him, but holiness is also needed for us to be effective in our mission. The old-school Scottish theologian Robert McChain, McShane, I think, <laughs> Robert, Robert McShane, I think that's how you pronounce his surname. He says, it's not great talents that God so much blesses as it is great likeness to Jesus. It's not great talents that God so much blesses as it is great likeness to Jesus. Okay. So the teaching text offers us holiness juxtaposed to happiness. So what shall I pursue now? Shall I pursue happiness? Or shall I pursue holiness? Let's look at the teaching text. I just want to see our next slide here. Yeah, okay, that's the breakout questions. So six things that I just want to mention real quick on our teaching text. The first one is every single Christian has this calling, okay, to be holy and to be driven by the gospel to become holy. Look at the words in verse 14. As obedient children, we bear the father's resemblance. Like father, like son, or like father, like daughter. And you guys remember that I spoke about the will of a parent earlier. Is I want my kids to be happy and to flourish, but I want them to be raised and nurtured and taught. I want them to grow rather than to be happy. Now, here's the cool thing about our theology, right? And what we believe about God. We believe that holiness is what they call a communicable, com a communicable attribute. Okay? It can be transferred from one to the other. So God's holiness can be transferred from him to us. Okay? There's certain attributes about God that cannot be transferred to us, like his omnipotence or his omnipresence. I mean, can you guys imagine if the Bible taught us, be omnipresent like God is omnipresent, right? None of us will be able to nail that down. Be omnipotent like God is omnipotent. That's not what the Bible teaches. But the Bible does say, be holy as God is holy. So we don't, we shouldn't be God, but we should be bound up with God so that our lives are lived to his glory. It's about being fully devoted to him. So that's the first thing it's for every single Christian. Secondly, this calling requires a very high view of God. The for I am holy quote comes from uh, the book of Leviticus. And the whole book of Leviticus um, is built on the assumption that God is so different, so big, that that should influence every single sphere of our lives. That's what the book's about, right? If you read it, it might not make for the best reading. But the whole book of Leviticus and all the laws in, the, in Leviticus is because we bear God's mark. And if we bear God's mark, we have to be different like he's different. We have to be gracious like he's gracious, right? We have to be obedient to him because he is the upper being. So that's our positional holiness, right? So that is why we worship, guys. That is why we pray. 
That is why we study the Bible. That is why we testify to one another. That is why we keep each other accountable in our lives as Christians. It's because we serve this massive God. And we have to keep on reminding each other of that. Third thing. Holiness, practical holiness, is fueled by gratitude. And the gratitude comes from our position as a holy people. Think about this. I think I said it a few weeks ago, but if I didn't, I'm going to say it now. It's about us saying and confessing, I get to be in this position. I get to be in this family. I get to have this calling. I mean, think about it. I can say it now because my wife is sitting right there. I can't look at Marie and say, I have to kiss Marie. But I can look at Marie and say, I get to kiss Marie. You guys know what I mean? Can you see her smiling in the frame? I get to kiss her. It's my privilege. Okay? I, I, uh, uh, I can't look at my kids and think, I must be a dad. I look at my kids and I think, I get to be a dad. I get to have the privilege. I didn't prepare for this sermon saying, I must preach the word of God. I prepared for this sermon saying, I get to preach the word of God and to expound it to people. It's a posture of gratitude. And our lives as holy Christians or people seeking holiness and unhappiness should come from a place of gratitude. Fourth thing that comes from these verses, and I'll point them to you now, or I'll point you to it now, is our conduct is really important because practical holiness is walked out in all of our lives, right? It comes to fruition in our lives. Look at the word conduct there. You also be holy in all your conduct, in the things you do. So conduct is used 13 times, that Greek word in the New Testament. And it gets used eight times by the Apostle Peter, only in these two epistles, right? So more than half of the occurrences in the New Testament comes from the Apostle Peter, and they come from these two epistles, 1 and 2 Peter. Why? Because Peter writes these epistles and he speaks about really serious, everyday stuff. He speaks about how we live in society in chapter 2. He speaks about how we live in marriage in chapter 3. He speaks about how we witness about the hope we have in us also later in chapter 3. Peter handles stuff that we call relational sin, right? Bickery and disunity and hatred and unforgiveness. And the reason why he handles all of these things is because that has an influence on our holiness because it has an influence on our conduct. Do you guys see that? So what I want you to know is that holiness doesn't just involve a separation from evil or a discontinuation of sin, but it's actually a dedication to righteous living. We often make the mistake to think, I should just stop doing something. And that is true that we should stop doing stuff, especially if it's sinful. But the other half of that truth is we should start doing things that we are called to do. So it's walked out in our lives. Our conduct is actually important. Fifth thing. It involves us honoring Christ, the Lord, as holy in our hearts, right? 
We all quote chapter 1, First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, saying that we should always be ready to testify about the hope that is inside of us. But that verse actually starts with, Honoring Christ as Lord in your heart, you should always be ready to testify about uh, the hope that is inside of us. So we know Jesus as a Galilean man, right? Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus from the sticks, the small village, this Jewish male who lived in an even smaller village called Capernaum later in his earthly ministry, right? We know him as a down-to-earth, plain guy who didn't have a lot of riches. And that often leads us to make the mistake that he's actually one of our buddies that we can take out for a drink to our local watering hole. And that is not true. Because even though he revealed himself to us as a Galilean man, we know him now as the exalted Christ, guys. Read Revelation 1 again. Read it slowly. Read it twice. And meditate deeply on it. Jesus is not one of our buddies. He is our friend, but he's not one of our buddies. He's the exalted Christ, the Lord of all the lords, right? The one who sees everything, the one who has infinite wisdom, the one who has a tongue that is like a double-edged sword. He's not to be trifled with. I often hear people, and this is me now pointing at Christians, say stuff like, listen, dude, the big guy and I, we cool with one another. Now, firstly, you cannot speak about him like the big guy. And secondly, what does we are cool with one another mean? Right? Because if we use that line to justify that we can do whatever we want because he's a cool guy that actually didn't have a house, then we have the wrong picture of Jesus. It involves us having a big, big view of Jesus, a bigger view of Jesus, a continuously growing view of Jesus. And then the sixth thing that I want to say is holiness involves believing that Jesus is better than sin. I'm just going to leave that line with you. Jesus is better than sin. We will go somewhere for satisfaction. We will, right? As human beings, that is what we want and that is what we need. But it is not found in sin. For Christians, and according to the gospel, it is found in Jesus. Don't go after a packet of Woolies rice cakes when you can have a chicken and sun-dried tomato espetada. Listen to me now. This is a word being spoken. I'm joking. What often happens to me is I stand in Woolies and I'm so hungry. Like there's chicken and sun-dried tomato espetadas right there. I just have to wait a little bit. And then there's a packet of rice cakes right here that no one wants. But I'm so hungry. I chow the rice cakes because I've wanted this all along. Have you ever gone to the grocery shopping when you're starving, guys? Anybody? You'll buy anything, right? Like rice cakes. I've always wanted to try these, I say to myself, when I actually have them. But I know that I actually didn't. It's just because I'm starving and then I'll consume anything because I'm hungry. I think Lesejo told the story about this last week in his sermon as well. And I had a good chuckle because I relate to it. And it's the same with us. Just because we look for satisfaction, because we seek joy and fulfillment, it doesn't mean that it's to be found in anything else than Jesus himself. And that's something that we'll grow in. That's something that we'll get better in. That's something that we'll get used to. So this text applies to all of us who call ourselves believers. If you have been called to salvation, you've been called to holiness. Max Lucado 
probably, if I pronounce it correctly in American English, Max Lucado, he wrote a book called When God Whispers Your Name. And in the book, he uh, tells a story about a fish on a beach, right? And I'm not going to quote the whole story, but here's what he says. He just asked the question, if you would take a fish from the ocean and you would put him on the beach, will that fish be happy? And obviously, the rhetorical answer to that question is, of course not. The fish won't. Why? Because a fish is not made for the beach. A fish is made for the ocean. You and I, as human beings, made in the image of God, called back to him through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and by the gift of his resurrection and the life that he gave us, we weren't made for earth. We weren't made to live in this broken world. We were made to be in communion with God himself and to be in a relationship with him. Moments of happiness, moments of joy cannot compare, guys, to what lies ahead for us. Living with God in eternity, in full light, with no pain, no shame, no sickness, no death, gone are the things of this world. That is what awaits us. We'll never find that on earth. Never. We shouldn't think that we can find that on earth. We will find that only in Him. We will find that only in Him. So we should pretty much, this is something Craig Rochelle said, he said we should lower our expectations of earth. We shouldn't lower our expectations of heaven. Because sometimes we have that lopsided as Christians. We have these massively high expectations of earth and these massively low expectations of heaven. And we should turn that around. But here's the truth. No new car, no new spouse, no new baby, no new house. That sounds like a verse of a song that I could compose right now. Will give you the joy your heart craves. None of it. Only a life bound up with God. A holy life will. We were made for this. We were made to be in relationship with Him. We were made to have our lives bound up in Him. In exactly the same way that a fish is made for the sea and not for the beach. Now here's the crazy thing. I saved this one to last. It will actually make you happy. A life of holiness will make you happy. Because we were called for this and we are called to this. God doesn't want you happy. He wants you holy. Now that is something that Jesus said. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we listened to your word this morning. And uh, it brings us to a standstill. It uh, leads us to a place of deep reflection. It has us uh, down, on our knees, uh, down on our knees, prostrated before you. And it brings us to this place of being willing to change because of you and because of the truth of your word. I pray that you would make this true in us. I pray that you would work in our minds and in our hearts. I pray that you would give us great insight as we move to our breakouts. I pray that we will be holy today because that is what you have called us or that is what you have called us to be. Amen.